if you could begin making your way back to your seats. And uh, as you do, grab your Bibles. And we're going we're gonna to head on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 together. Actually planning to get through the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 together. And just as we have been doing since the beginning of 2019, we're just walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I told you we're going to take a break next week um, because we're going to do prayer and praises, testimonies. And uh, so I will not be preaching next week. We'll get an opportunity to hear from all. Was that a woo? Did somebody just woo that? My wife wooed that. All right. All right. Well, yeah, very good. Um, I know. I, th- I think we need to work ourselves forward all the way to verse 34 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. No, I'm, uh, I'm kidding. You'll, you'll understand that when we get there. Uh, but, so we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, the entire book. Here we are at uh, about six weeks left in the year. Chapter f- Somebody just read forward, and they're now laughing. <laughs> Very good. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to be closing down 14 today. Provided we can all stay on task, and uh, then we'll take the break next week and come back and be looking at uh, chapter 15, really through the month of Christmas. I know Christmas is not a month, but bear with me, through the month of Christmas. Uh, and then that last Sunday, we're going we're gonna to do a bit of a sprint through chapter 16 and just kind of close down um, what Paul has said, try to tie some big thoughts and ideas together um, and so uh, I, I know I've probably said this a few times along the way, um, and I've meant it every time, but I really mean it this time. Uh, this is a really difficult text, um, and if you read forward to verse 34, you probably know and understand why. Um, and so here's the deal. We're going to spend a little less time on the first two scenarios Paul throws out, and a little more time on the third scenario that he gives instruction to, all for the goal of not killing the closing song this week, okay? Uh, I've done that the last two weeks, hopefully we can sing at the end of the service, but then we have this business meeting happening as well, Um, and so would like for us to get out of here before 4 p.m. this afternoon, okay? Um, So that's a little bit of what we're going to try and aim for and do, Um, so let's just pray, and then we'll hop into the text We're going to try to make sense of what Paul writes and go from there. Would you join me? God in heaven, we are grateful for who you are, how it is that you have lavished your love on us, what Christ has done for us, and here now in his name, we gather to sit under your word. God, we don't gather to sit under my words. We gather to sit under your word. And we pray that you'd help us to understand it. And so, God, if you need to, we ask that you just push back the fog and bring clarity. God, may we see just your character revealed in the text as Paul tells us you're not a God of confusion of peace, of order, and as we close down this chapter and 
in many ways, it's just spiritual gifts and, and all of the ways the Corinthians erred and what it is you command them and by extension us to do and how to think. God, we want to be those that follow you well. We want to be those that gather to build up. That use the gifts that you've given us to build up your body, to make disciples. And so God, to that end, we pray that you would just meet with us and be gracious to us that we might understand what it is that you've said. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, here's how our text is going to break down roughly as we go. Paul's going to address some order for languages, and the word order is really significant because that's the, that's the unifying theme of these verses. He's wrapping up the conversation and discussion on spiritual gifts. He's giving instructions to then what order looks like in the gathered assembly of the church body there in Corinth. And he's giving them instruction for what do, what do we do with languages? Well, here's some order for that. What do we do with prophecies? Well, here's some order for that. He, he gives some order for, uh, for the relationship between men and women. And if you read forward, you know what I mean by that. And then he reminds them, and by extension us, that we don't actually make the rules. And that's where he goes in verse 36 to close this whole chapter down. And so I think we're going to see that word order show up and it be emphasized. It probably is a heading in that section of your Bibles. And it probably is also the last word in verse 40 where he says, let everything be done decently and in order. That's the big idea, that there should be an order to what it is we do when we gather. It is not to be chaos, which is probably where the Corinthian church found themselves in all manner of speakings regarding gifts, regarding roles, regarding all sorts of things, both culturally and not. There was a lot of chaos, and he, he's addressed some of that before. He's addressed some of that as it related to uh, how they approach the communion table. He's addressed some of that in how they approach the marketplace. He's addressed that in how they've approached gifts. And he continues and comes back to that idea of order. And he, in verse 26, just begins, What then, brothers, or brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. There's two parts to that verse. Well, there's actually three. The first is this question, and the question that he launches in with, so what then, brothers, is just the question of, all right, what are we going to do with all of this, everybody? How are we going to make sense of this? How are we going to apply this? And then he continues, when you come together. Now that phrase, when you come together, is written in such a way that he's indicating something. And thus far, through the book of Corinthians, when he indicates that with those words, he's got something negative on his mind. 
He's not commending them for what happens when they come together. He used those words in chapter 11 as it related to the, the, the communion table. He's like, look, when you come together to celebrate the communion table, you guys are a mess. And he gives them instruction for how there's to be order when they gather around the Lord's table together. I think the same thing is true here. He first begins indicating that there is disorder, and the disorder then is itemized and outlined and given further clarification in what he writes next. Our English translations don't do this for us, but the word has that you see there right before probably him, each one has... A hymn, that word has is a verb, and Paul uses it five different times. It's like this rhetorical device that he's just, he's just very clearly identifying to them the level of disorder that is taking place. And our English translations, they just compress it, but I think we get and we lose a little bit of the flavor there of what he's saying is he's just outlining for them their disorder. So each one of you has a hymn, has a lesson, has a revelation, has a tongue, or has an interpretation. That's what he's indicating is true. And then he gives them the command at the end of verse 26, let all things be done for building up. I think there was a self-centeredness to the Corinthian gatherings. And I think it doesn't take a lot of thought to see that work itself out from the beginning of chapter 1 all the way up until this point. That's why we've even called this sermon series Better Together. Because there should not be a self-centeredness that characterizes us. Because we're better together. And given Paul's command, it's probably not a stretch to think that nobody was actually coming to give or to build. They were coming to impress and be the center of attention. Let's just think through how that might look. Because some of those things on that list, well, all of the things on the list are probably good things. But here's where I think that kind of works itself out. I'll give you an example. All right, Last week I challenged all of you to find somebody today to pray with encourage, build up in that way. And here's would be the distinction. If you found somebody just one-on-one, hey, how's your week? It was a good week, it was a bad week, you know, whatever it was. All right, can, can, we, can we pray? Can I pray for you? And, and you just pray. One-on-one, just kind of a conversation right there. That, in my opinion, is building up it's following the instructions that Paul's given. It's, it's, you, it's you coming to the gathering with something to offer. And that is way different than you coming up and getting everybody's attention and saying, Excuse me, I am now ready to pray for all of you. And I think you should be glad that I'm here now ready to pray for all of you. It's a massive difference between the two. One, it's pretty self-centered in how... No matter how altruistic it seems, you can kind of cut through and see it for what it is. And the other one's actually probably just pretty genuine and loving and caring. I think it's Paul's just trying to get them to understand that the, the things that they found themselves doing weren't necessarily in and of themselves bad, but the manner by which they went about it was for their own 
exaltation. Not for the building up of the body, not for the glory of Jesus. They wanted the spotlight. They didn't want it to shine anywhere else. And he just says, look, let all things be done for building up. And then he steps into languages. And we're not going to spend a lot of time talking and thinking about tongues. That sermon audio is on the website. If you've, just, if you've not missed or if you missed the last couple weeks, you just need to kind of dial in and catch yourself up. We just don't have the time this morning to unpack that. But I do want to just say in full disclosure that this is the one place, verse 27, the one place where Paul uses the singular tongue that doesn't fit that paradigm I've given you of tongues being known languages and a tongue being mysterious utterances. So just in full disclosure, is as we've thought through this, as I've outlined for you these things, there are holes to poke through the arguments that have been made and the explanations that have been given. But here's the thing, there's actually a grammatical thing going on there where it, it, it doesn't not fit. Can we say it that way? And so I think Paul is talking about known languages here, and then he just gives the order for what that looks like. He told them last week, well for us it was last week, that look, if everybody just shows up and is talking in known languages, the thing's chaos. It doesn't benefit the believers because nobody's interpreting, nobody has a clue what's being said, and it doesn't even benefit the unbelievers. They think you're crazy. But in not wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater, he gives them an order for what that looks like. And he just says this, only two, or at most three, and each in turn. And then you let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent and speak to himself and to God. The order given is that it's not a free-for-all. It's not everyone it's two or at most three. It's in turn. So there's an order even to how the two or at most three go. And there is interpretation. That word interpret there, it's the, it's the idea of give, giving translation or explanation. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament just to give and communicate that idea. And so Paul's saying, look, even in your use of your spiritual gifts, there's not to be chaos. There is to be order. And the command then, if there is no translation, is for the one, regardless of the greatness of their gift, to be silent. That's significant. It's the first of three times that we'll see in our text a command for silence given. And silence is the command given in the absence, or I should, I'll say it this way, for order. If this order can't be followed for how we're going to see tongues, silence is the answer. And then he secondly gives an order for prophecies. And there in verse 29 you see, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you all can prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of 
peace. So he gives an order for prophecies. Now we've been thinking through and trying to define what prophecies are. I'm going to give you the definition that prophecies are the exclamation, the proclamation, and the explanation of God's word. New Testament prophecy is not somebody foretelling the future. And it is different than Old Testament prophecy. And those gifted that way and those called prophets in the New Testament exercise that gift and that that speaking in entirely different ways than the Old Testament prophet did. So when Jeremiah spoke, he had to be perfect in what he spoke. And the people who heard him had to obey or he got judged if he wasn't perfect or they got judged if they didn't obey. Entirely different come the New Testament. There's actually this this process of testing that you're talked through. Here, the prophets, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. I conclude that to mean whatever said gets placed through the grid of God's word. It sits under the authority of God's word. So as we've thought through over the last several weeks, what do we do with that? When somebody's like, "I, I, I think the Lord laid this on my heart for you. For me, I'm personally just sticking it in the maybe folder. Okay, thank you for sharing. I will spend some time praying about that. I'll spend some time asking the Lord to help me discern through that. But there is no obligation on any of our parts to immediately obey what somebody might have to reveal or say to us unless it's a direct quotation from Scripture and then the issue is actually not them anymore but Scripture. But there's to be an order that takes place. You again have two or three prophets. There's to be a weighing. That word weigh means to evaluate, to judge, to pay careful attention to. See, we're not just blindly saying, oh my goodness, there we go. We're sticking it in the maybe folder. We're judging, we're paying careful attention to, we're submitting it. To the scriptures. And there we have the second of three commands for silence. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you all can prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Again, it's the idea of order. Now let's just talk real briefly about this word revelation because we use this word revelation in a couple different ways as the scriptures do a little bit as well. Okay, the, re- the word revelation is used to refer to God speaking. So like the Old Testament and the New Testament we would say is God's revelation. We'd say this is special revelation. The word revelation is also used in a general sense to just refer to and reflect on what God has done throughout the created universe. That those heavens are declaring and they're telling us, they're revealing to us something about God. The word revelation also is just used to refer to just the disclosure of what was previously unknown. So it's used in regards to uh, the coming of Christ. We have a book of revelation. And actually, the Greek word for revelation is the word apocalypse. And so I know we have, we use the word in our own kind of culture and society. And around the year 2000, what was there? There was all sorts of movies about the end of the world. And then the, a couple years after that, the Mayan calendar predicted the end of the world. And so all of these apocalyptic movies came out. 
and you have post-apocalyptic literature and books that are being written and all sorts of stuff. Uh, well, the word apocalypse does not mean crazy large-scale battle. It just means revealing. It has been twisted, culturally speaking, because it does refer to eventually a battle when Jesus comes. Revelation 19, there will be a battle, but it, it just simply means revelation. And the battle is because the king's coming. So what Paul here means by the word revelation, I think is just the simple but making known what was not known before. In no way is it on the level or on par with scripture. And that, I believe, is clear by his explanation and by context. Because you're supposed to weigh what was said. It's supposed to be subject or submissive to the prophets. Which I interpret and conclude would be what God has clearly revealed. And so we gotta just you gotta just think about how we use this word revelation, because if we if we don't, we can get ourselves kind of goofed up in not thinking, in not using discernment, in not weighing, in not judging, in not being careful to pay close attention to. And so there is room for and there is a giftedness for people saying, Let the Lord lay this on my heart. But we're not called to immediately or even blindly obey whatever that might have been. There's to be an order when we gather if that happens in our midst. And nobody gets a free pass on authority. The, prof the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. I've told you I think that's in reference to God's word as our ultimate authority. And as it just relates to the gathered body of the church, that's going to get fleshed out through a group of qualified men who are responsible for teaching and guarding doctrine. And in verse 33, Paul tells us that these things are to be true because of the character of God. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That word confusion is just the opposition to established authority. It means disorder. It means unruliness. Those things are to not characterize our gathering. Because that doesn't characterize God. It's not who he is and that should not be who we are. So there's to be an order. And then Paul gets in at the tail end of 33 and following to what is probably the most difficult of the three scenarios that he presents. And so he continues, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right, let's pray and then we'll go to the business meeting. There's a lot going on there. This is one of the reasons why 
I think it's good that we walk through books of the Bible. Because if you want to make a top ten list of things to not choose to preach on, this is probably making the list. And yet here we are, because ourselves, what we do, needs to be submitted to the authority of God's word. So women, the word there in context is referring to wives. There's a reference directly to husbands. And this passage, it doesn't closely parallel 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but there's some similar themes that show up in the two passages. And for the third time in these set of verses, he says women should keep silent. The, the person with a tongue or tongues, not with interpretation, should be silent. The prophets, if somebody else needs to speak, should be silent. And here he says that wives should be silent. And he, he says it three times. Women should keep silent, for they are not permitted to speak. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Here's where I land on these verses. I think Paul is giving a very specific command to silence. He is not giving a general prohibition against speaking. And I got to tell you, everybody's kind of all over the map on this. The reference works and commentaries that have been my go-tos for this entire year, they're all over the map on this to the extent. And here's the extremes. One says, well, it's pretty clear that women should not speak, so women should not speak. End of conversation. And I don't know how much of you or how many of you kind of follow church culture, but just even within the last month, there was a really well-known pastor from a really well-known church in the state of California that said to another really well-known author who was a woman, he said, go home, stop. That perspective exists, even within pretty conservative and theologically accurate circles. I've got a book on my shelf that says that. I've got another commentary, and this is actually the thickest one, which is what surprised me, because like, this is probably the most detailed one, where the guide says, um, those verses appear to be made up in a later edition by somebody, and so we're just not going to talk about them. And then he literally doesn't talk about them. He just jumps down to verse 36, and he's like, okay, here we go. Just completely skips it. And then, and then you, I mean, if those are your polar extremes, you've got obviously then everybody else in the middle. And so this question about, it's broader than just can a woman speak in this room. It's what do we do with women in ministry? What do we do with giftedness? What do we do with these things? So here's why I think this is a specific command to silence that is in regards to a specific scenario. It's not a general pro prohibition against speaking. Nobody really knows what's going on culturally. Paul doesn't give us a tremendous amount of detail about the scenario. There's a whole lot more in the scenario in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians regarding the, the, the activities of men and women than there is here. 
My best guess is, is that certain women or wives in the church were acting in, in a culturally disgraceful way. I couldn't even pinpoint for you what that culturally disgraceful way is, but there was disorder in what they were doing. That seems to be pretty clear. This whole passage is about order. It begins and ends there. There's order given for languages. There's order given for prophecies. Here's what I've then just concluded was an order of authority. Something was happening that was disorderly. Now, given the context of how Paul writes it and what immediately preceded it, it may have to do with the judging and evaluating of prophecies in the gathered body. But I want us to just think here briefly of, of just what, what culture at this point in time thought about women. It doesn't provide all of the answers for us, but at least gives us a snapshot of what culture thought about women and I think might help us make some sense of this and what Paul says elsewhere. And so 25 years before the birth of Jesus, 25 BC, uh, a philosopher by the name of Philo wrote, and this should rightly offend all of us, but he writes, let no woman busy herself about the things which are beyond the scope of household management and not be seen about like a woman who walks in the streets in sight of other men. 25 years before the birth of Christ, that was the leading perspective. Maybe about 25, 30, 40 years after Paul wrote this letter, the perspective hadn't changed much, but it was still being written about. And there another first century scholar wrote, A woman's speech ought to not be for public, and she ought to be modest and guarded about saying anything in the hearing of outsiders, that being defined as just those outside her home. So I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the answer. I'm just trying to help us understand a broader picture of where the cultural understanding of the role of women was. It was said by one of the scholars that I looked at that in Paul's day, it was shameful for a woman to even speak to a married man who was not her husband. That's just a different day than we live in. It's a different day than we live in. And part of the reason I just want to I, I highlight these understandings of the role of women in society there in this time was because I think the scriptures run countercultural to that. And if we're not careful, and there are those who do this, we can just find ourselves cherry-picking a verse like, for women should keep silent in the churches, and some of us are going to go, well, the Bible's outdated and doesn't need to get listened to, because I can't imagine a scenario that way. And then some of us are going to go, wait a minute, women aren't allowed to speak in churches. Like, that's clear, right? And if we don't understand a little bit of what the context of the culture was, I think we can miss the fact of how radical the scriptures actually are in affirming women. 
and giving them really significant places for ministry that would have been outside the bounds that were culturally accepted. So the very first people to announce the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead were women. That's significant. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that if head coverings are worn, women are allowed to pray and prophesy in church. Now, we, we stepped through that earlier this summer, and I gave you the, the kind of the understanding or interpretation that, that what Paul's talking about is culturally accepted expressions of modesty. It's not just that a woman needs to wear a ball cap when she comes here. It's that a head covering in this place and in this time meant things to them that we just have absolutely no understanding of. And it would go as far to say that if you were without a head covering, the conclusion drawn was that you were an individual of ill repute. It was, it, was, it was tied together that way. And certainly there's, there's ways you could dress today where similar conclusions can be drawn. And so we aim for culturally appropriate expressions of modesty. The parts that should be covered, we cover. We want to be modest in our dress. And Paul says, look, if that modesty's there, women are allowed to pray and prophesy in church. They're not bringing any shame or disgrace on their family by doing so. They're allowed to be there. They're allowed to be active. They're allowed to be involved. And he writes that in such a way that he says that the women and the men are doing the exact same thing. And then we get to chapter 14, and it seems as if he's done an about-face, which is what leads some people to say those verses were made up by others in a later edition, and so let's just completely trash them. I don't know exactly what was going on in the context of Corinth in these moments, why Paul would say, look, if there's chaos with tongues, there should be silence. And if there's chaos or disorder with prophecies, there should be silence. And if there's chaos or disorder with the wives, they should be silent. We, we don't know exactly what goes into that statement. But I think we absolutely have to balance it with the fact that just three chapters earlier, Paul very clearly articulates in a lot more detail and with a lot more verses even, that women are allowed to pray and prophesy. So silence was the answer that he gave. It's the third time that he's commanded silence. It's the third time that he's used this word. But here's something that I think needs to just be understood and is significant. The reason he gives for silence is actually submission. Now that's just another really unpopular word as well, so that might not have done anything to help anybody. But here's the thing, and we're not going to unpack this this morning. I think if we understand biblical submission and the roles that God created husbands and wives to have and how they are complementary to one another and how there, there, there are some lines that he gives... we can begin understanding that 
this is a specific command to silence in a specific scenario, not a general prohibition against speaking. Silence was the answer. Submission was the reason, and that's what he says. For they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. I take that to mean there was something in the speech of these wives that was out of order with what God had designed both the home and the church to be. The big picture appears to be this issue of authority in biblical roles that God has ordained for the home and the church. So the command may have been for silence, but he grounds the command and gives the reason of submission for the command. Just similarly, the, the command in chapter 11 was for head coverings, but the reason was for biblical roles and submission. It's not any different. And so here, here's just what I take this to mean for us. And I'll explain to you how I get there. That the office of elder is the only position in our church that we believe, that our church believes, is for men only. How do I get there? Because the word elder is not anywhere in the text. Here's how I get there. I I would see that Paul's referring to something specific that was taking place in the judging and evaluating of prophecies where there was to be an an elder guarding of doctrine, teaching doctrine role. It's not in the text. I realize I'm making a bit of a jump, but that's the jump I'm making. The role of elder, the office of elder, includes the determining of doctrine, includes the preaching of doctrine, it includes the guarding of doctrine. In 1 Timothy, Paul talks about this in chapter 2 and in chapter 5 and outlines that the, that the, that the role of preaching and teaching is, is one God has given to elders, which he, in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, very clearly outlines is a male office because of the way he's ordered both the home and the church. So let's just then ask the really practical question of what can women do in our church? I think women can do anything and everything but be an elder, which would include the responsibility of preaching and teaching in the gathered group. So women can be deacons, women can be ministry team leaders, women can be Sunday school teachers, and for myself, I'd say for for adults and kiddos. Women can serve on the nominating team. They can be in financial roles. They can be missionaries we support. They can pray. They can read scripture. They can give testimony. Because I see what Paul's commanding. And I realize I'm I'm, I'm making a jump. But hopefully it's not one outside what scripture says elsewhere. That what Paul's referring to has primarily to do with this function and office role of elder, which is to be male only, 
and function in a plurality. Let's just think through this a little further. What can women do in a Christian organization that's not a local church? There, I would say absolutely anything. Women can teach in seminaries. I had a seminary prof who was a woman. Her class was tremendous. She's still in our fellowship, still teaching and leading, doing a whole bunch of really awesome stuff. Women can write Bible commentaries. Women could be the president of the institution. I don't think there's any biblical command against a woman being the president or top leader of any Christian organization. And there's not any top leader in the church either. There's a plurality of leaders. Qualified men who God has risen up And given the responsibility of leading to. What can women do in society? I would say absolutely anything again. And here's where I would just take this a little further. Because this might be where your worlds intersect just a little bit more. If, If you're a man and have a woman who's a boss. Or a boss who's a woman. And you struggle with that. That's a you problem. That's not a Bible problem. She's not out of step with the scriptures. You are. Because you're not submitting to the authority that's been placed over you. And that authority in the marketplace is not a male-only authority. Let's not confuse the issue here. Let's not broaden the scope wider. Because I think we can get ourselves into some big-time trouble when we do so. What I'm suggesting this passage means is very narrowly related to the role and responsibility of preaching, teaching, guarding doctrine, evaluating doctrine, which is a function of an elder. And so maybe just to try to summarize briefly then this idea of biblical authority and the word submission As it relates to women and as it relates to men, there are only two places that women are called to submit in the sense that we think about it. Now the reason why I say it like that is we're we're generally all commanded to submit to one another, to defer to one another, to serve one another. That doesn't matter about gender. That has nothing to do with gender. That's something that we're all called to do. So when the scriptures talk about wives submit to your husbands, It very clearly always says and indicates your own husband. Not all men everywhere. So men in the church do not occupy some higher position of status because they have different parts. And women are not somehow lower by nature of their anatomy. It's wives to your own husbands. My wife is not called to submit to any of you husbands, and vice versa. Here's the other way in place that women are called to submit. And this goes for everybody, men and women included. We're all called called to submit to the elders of the church. And that's where there's a plurality. You're not all called to submit to me. Please do not confuse that, because you all got to hear thinking, well, we're all called to submit to Tim, great. I'd probably make the same conclusion. We're all called 
myself included, and any one of those other guys serving on that team, called to submit to the team. I've been asked to lead the team, but I'm not the CEO. I'm one of many given the responsibility of elder and the roles and the responsibilities that come there with it. I think we can get ourselves real goofy when we think about these things. And, and culture right now wants to scream about these things. And unfortunately, there are places and people, just even within the last month, that within the world of Christianity have said some things that I just don't find helpful. Our fellowship's actually going to try to bring some clarity to this in some ways. We, a couple years ago, passed a position statement just on elder and uh, what, what, is, what is an elder and, how, and, and just the fact that it's male only, but there's still a lot of work to be done there. And I've actually asked, been asked to be a part of a team that helps develop some of that for not this coming year's conference, but in 2021, we are anticipating having some, some things ready to just kind of walk through. But for us, as it relates to here, the only thing that I see biblically that women cannot do is serve in the position or the office of elder, and therein the responsibilities that that entails. So in verse 36, Paul then takes us from an order of authority to ultimate authority. And he says, or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? Um, Paul's just saying, did you guys make this up? Or did God give it to you? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Here is the way to summarize those. Do we believe that God's word has authority over us or not? If we don't believe that, it doesn't matter what you have to say If you disagree that God's word is the final authority and ultimate authority. Like there's not even a conversation that happens within our church if that's not first what we can agree on. Is God's word final or not? Now along the way we can have some really good discussions about well what did he mean there and what did he say here and how do those work together and flesh themselves out. But if we don't agree that what God has said matters more than anything any person has to say, we don't even have a conversation. It doesn't matter how spiritual you think you are. It doesn't matter how gifted you think you are. You might think you have the gift of prophecy. You might think you are a spiritual person. But if you do not acknowledge the ultimate authority of God's word, you don't get a voice. So one of the questions on our volunteer application is, do you agree with that? It's one of the questions on our membership covenant for those that we ask and talk through these details of what it looks like to be a member here. Because that matters. And if we can't agree there, we actually don't have conversations. And then he summarizes in verse 39. So my brothers, earnestly desire prophecy. Do not forbid the speaking of Tongues, those known languages, but once again, let all things, and all things should be done decently and in order. 
our gatherings should not be characterized by chaos. And even as we begin, and I hope we, I hope we do it. I hope we like work hard at using our gifts, figuring out how God's gifted us and impassioned us, but doing it in a way that honors and glorifies Him and is done in submission to His Word, that there is decency and that there is order in all that we do. So let's pray before we run out of time and we'll get that closing song in today. And then parents, if you can make your way to get your kids, bring them back here. It looks like we'll start the business meeting at about 11.50. All right, would you pray? God, we do pray that you'd just help us to be people of order and not confusion but decency because that's who you are. You're not a God of confusion, but you're a God of peace. And God, I pray that you would help us to be like you, to act like you, to think like you, to love like you, to honor, to affirm, to look like you. And so God, as you're doing that in us, would you help us be that much more obedient to your work in our lives and what it is that you you call us to and what it is that you're doing and the, the, the rough spots you got to knock down and chisel away. And God, may we look more like Jesus. May we love more like Jesus and serve more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.